Bits and Bricks. Welcome to Bits and Bricks, a podcast about all things LEGO games. I'm Ethan Vincent. And I'm Brian Crescenti. Together, we look back at the rich 25-year history of LEGO games, chat with early developers and seasoned studios who have all tackled the creation of video games for one of the most popular and respected toy companies in the world, the LEGO Group. For TT Games, the idea of an open-world LEGO video game goes back as far as the company does. The developers behind all of those immensely popular movie and book-themed LEGO video games had been wanting to make an original LEGO-themed game that lets players explore an expansive world since they started working on the original LEGO Star Wars video game. But they weren't able to break away from their string of massive hits to work on something completely their own for about half a decade. First, there was 2005's LEGO Star Wars The Video Game, then the original trilogy and complete saga, then came LEGO Indiana Jones, Batman, and the indie sequel. It wasn't until 2010 that the TT Games subsidiary TT Fusion wrapped up work on LEGO Rock Band that they finally got a chance to start playing around with ideas. Ultimately, their work would become the Wii U exclusive LEGO City Undercover, a temporarily lost treasure in the annals of TT Games' collection of gaming gems. The journey from dreaming of an open-world game to crafting a Nintendo exclusive included a number of surprise twists and turns. Before being acquired by TT Games in 2007, TT Fusion was known as Embryotic Studios, a studio started by the former founders of Warthog and Digital Anvil. The studio's initial focus was creating licensed portable video games. Once they were acquired by TT and renamed, their focus was on bringing some of TT's biggest titles to portable platforms. It was TT Fusion that delivered LEGO Star Wars, The Complete Saga, LEGO Indiana Jones, The Original Adventures, and LEGO Batman, the video game to the Nintendo DS. But in 2009, TT Fusion shifted gears to working on a home console title that was very different from the usual TT game's LEGO fare, LEGO Rock Band. Where most LEGO video games from TT Games at the time were adventure titles tied to popular existing worlds given life in comics and movies, LEGO Rock Band was a reinterpretation of Harmonic's monster hit music rhythm video game Rock Band. Build your band, rock to your favorite songs, and roll all over the universe. LEGO Rock Band. The game pushed TT Fusion outside the comfort of creating adventure games for portable systems and into development that required out-of-the-box thinking. Matt Palmer was the lead animator in the project. The biggest challenge with LEGO Rock Band, when we actually started it, it was how does a LEGO minifigure, if you were to make him a a full-size human, how does he hold a guitar? It was great fun to be able to, to look at how the Rock Band game genre worked and translate it to LEGO characters. It was really good fun, really hard work, but really good fun to, to be get, getting all the, the different tempos and beats and rhythms and, and using the knowledge that we had and how we made games and the style of games that we made and um, mashing it up with, with the rock band style games. Um, so we, we've still got the humour in there, still got the, the Lego fun that we're, we're kind of known for, but then also getting kids playing guitars and, and, and actually enjoying the musical side of the LEGO group at the time. Development on LEGO Rock Band started in 2008, and the game launched in the fall of 2009 to mostly positive reviews. 
As the game was wrapping up, the folks at TT Fusion were being asked to work on more console titles and were trying to decide what they wanted to do next, Palmer said. There were many ideas being banded around, but a, an open world game was something that we hadn't actually done at that point. And it actually became more and more exciting the more we talked about it. And we started to put a team together to say, actually, if we were to do an open world, how would we do it? What would we need? What technologies would we need? How many animators would we need? <laughs> Which was uh, probably one of the biggest teams that I worked with. Another thing TT Games as a group had long wanted to do was create an original title using the LEGO Group's immensely popular LEGO City theme sets. Both co-founders Jonathan Smith and Tom Stone had been discussing the idea with the LEGO Group for years. And with so many hits under their belts, the time seemed right, so the LEGO Group handed TT Games the keys to their LEGO City. The LEGO Group were keen for us to, to do a, a title based on their LEGO City range. Here, Matt Palmer, the lead animator of the project. And ideas just started being thrown around and what could we do? And as time progressed, um, especially from the animation side, we were able to, to have a play. And it, it was a, a time period of, of real discovery of what we could do with the LEGO City franchise. The team spent nearly a year working on prototypes set in a LEGO City open world, a process that involved not just experimenting with different sorts of play, but also what parts of LEGO City to use. And that's a big theme set to pull from. We've just heard that a 300-foot monster is heading for Legoland Town. Over to our correspondent. Here at police headquarters, work is underway to prevent a disaster. Residents and the Roadworks Division are turning houses into a wall to keep out the intruder. Ambulance and fire services are on standby. Every vehicle has been mobilized. The monster's coming! But mercifully, it has bypassed the town. There'll be celebrations in the street tonight. Connect Legoland. It's like living in your own town. Lego City grew out of the concept of giving children the ability to build and play with their own Lego brick towns, an idea first brought to life in 1955 with Town Plan. In 1978, the Lego group introduced Legoland Town, which was inspired by the Lego system and play sets first introduced back in the 50s. The first town introduced base plates with studs on them, allowing builders to create their own houses and cities on the plates. It also introduced the first minifigures. In 1991, the Legoland name was dropped and the theme became simply Lego Town, which expanded to include numerous town sub-themes like Outback, Spaceport, and Arctic. Lego Town became Lego World City in 2003 and then Lego City in 2005. In Lego City, the great cargo ship is sailing in to make a delivery at the harbor. Since the renaming, a wide range of new city sub-themes have been released, including everything from airports, space stations, and a jungle to a volcano, trains, and fire and police sets. The new police collection from LEGO City. Base plates and background models not included. As TT Fusion continued to play around with the ideas of game mechanics and which themes to use, Nintendo showed up with a surprising offer. In 2011, Nintendo approached the LEGO group about potentially co-developing a title with Nintendo for the soon-to-be-released Wii U console. Nintendo had a lot to live up to with the Wii U console. Its predecessor, the Wii, had shattered records for Nintendo during its seven-year run. The Wii U was a hybrid system that featured a home console that plugged into the television and a chunky controller that featured its own screen. 
This tablet-like second screen was meant to be used to help augment gameplay and provide players with another way to interact with games. Matt Palmer said the team was excited to hear that Nintendo had specifically asked TT Games for an early Wii U title. There was a buzz of excitement around the studio. With that buzz of excitement comes all the all the challenges of what can this new console do? We know what the new console is supposed to be able to do. How do we change the game to work for that console? Having the dual screen brought its challenges, but, but also brought its fun um, and those extra elements that we could add, add into the story and into the gameplay. Um, it felt like we'd been specifically sought out as actually that's a team that we want to work with, which for me is really flattering having grown up with Nintendo consoles. Working on a launch title for a new console comes with its own added level of stress for any developer. That's because during the development of a new console, the power and features of a system can shift, having a major impact on what a developer can eke out of the system for its games. On top of that, there was a sense that LEGO City Undercover, if it did well, could help establish a strong relationship between Nintendo and the LEGO Group, something that the LEGO Group had been working to achieve for years. Daryl Kelly, who was the LEGO Group producer on the game, said on top of that, the LEGO City theme set is considered the crown jewel of the LEGO Group. So there was a lot of pressure. So, you know, TT Games was, you know, we were talking about creating this game for years. And the opportunity, you know, kind of came forward to the LEGO Group um, that Nintendo definitely had an interest, potentially making this an exclusive title, you know, for their new console, which was in development at that point, and that was the Wii U. Um, so yes, um, you know, after you know the consideration of, of what that meant um, to be exclusive within with Nintendo and and to really be treated as a first party title on their console was you know was a was a great opportunity for the Logo Group and and something I think that we we you know had to you know jump at and uh, and, and grasp that opportunity. I think there have been conversations about you know. Working with Nintendo, but more maybe on the on the physical brick side. So potentially having, you know, whether it be a license deal or you know, looking at some of the different properties that a Nintendo has and actually producing physical Lego sets, but never to a degree of you know, kind of creating and working really joint jointly together uh, to create a a title that in this case again would be treated as really a, a first party uh, title on their platform. Because of the importance of the title for both the LEGO Group and Nintendo, there was a lot of direct involvement between the two companies and developer TT Fusion. They were very, very involved. So I think everything from obviously the development side, um, even right down through the marketing piece and the plans to actually go to market with the title, uh, which was you know handled by a couple of my colleagues and even um, some key stakeholders in the U.S. Um, being you know our primary market for games. But we would meet with them hand in hand Work very closely by a gentleman named Tim Bechtel over at Nintendo of America. You know, we would talk about the game development. We would review builds at the same time, provide our feedback and input, test, uh, help to QA. Um, so they were they were very very involved um, in terms of not only you know just the development, ensuring it lives up to the quality that we would all expect from both Nintendo and the Logo Group and the high standards I think that we all have, but then also. You know, the, the go-to-market strategy, too, was, was something that was very deeply integrated across the Logo Group and Nintendo. 
with Nintendo on board and the LEGO group handing the LEGO City theme to TT Fusion, the pieces were in place for development to start. But first, the team had to decide what of the many elements of the theme sets they'd focus on. The route we took with LEGO City was to go the LEGO City Police kind of range. This is Matt Palmer speaking. What can we do with that sort of range? Are we allowed to use weapons? Are we allowed to use any sort of comedy violence? Are we allowed to, do we have to just scale all that that sort of side back? So it was kind of, it was a really exploratory phase. And I, I think it seemed like it went on for, for years and years and years, but it was probably only about eight or nine months where we, we actually had some fun and just said, what, what, what things could we do? What, as if, if we have got these characters, what could we do with the Lego humor that we like to add? What could we do with the Lego bricks that we know that the Lego group would like to have, have us use? What could we do with the sets that they, they have got out, they are planning to release? And it was myself and the lead animator on the project, Phil Chapman. We spent many, many hours drinking coffee, having cups of tea, chatting through things and kind of, well, what, what could we do? It almost got to a point as we were looking back and going, actually, rather, what can't we do or what could we do? Um, the what could we do folder was looking extremely large. As the team dove into the notion of bringing an open-world game to life, set in a LEGO city, with police, it was inevitable that another sort of open-world game of crime and cops would bubble up, the mature-rated Grand Theft Auto. One thing we were keen to try and avoid... This is Matt Palmer. ...was it becoming a Grand Theft Auto game. It could very easily turn into actually, this is far too violent for what the LEGO group would like their IP related to. So we constantly stepped back from things and just made sure that we were looking at the fun and the funny element of what we could do. It was a really, really interesting phase, actually, because there was there were certain things that you kind of go, here's a character who's holding this great big gun. And straight away, as a still image, you go, we can't do that. What we did do was go, actually, this gun is a grapple gun. Um, in one case, we made all sorts of test pieces about using goo guns. So you were, you were capturing the criminal element in the game with glue and goop. So you're kind of making them stick to the floor. Um, the grapple gun actually became one that you could actually tie people up with. So you could shoot it at... There's an early section in the game with the clowns where you shoot the gun at the clowns and it actually ties them up in rope and sits them on the floor. So it was, it was it, the, the fun side of playing with all that was absolutely fantastic. You okay? Yeah, fine. Do you have a grapple gun with you? Well, I sure do. You're welcome to one of those useless pieces of junk. Anyway, uh, I better go. I've got to go arrest some robbers. Sure. Uh, good luck with that grapple gun. These things can be tricky to use! One of the key challenges TT Fusion faced in creating this open-world game, on top of the fact that they were creating a new play experience for TT Games, was that the team was trying to walk the line between delivering an experience that would feel familiar to the children and families who had played so many other of TT Games, but also one that could make use of all the new sorts of technology and features of the Wii U. I think probably one of the biggest challenges was thinking about how 
our regular game mechanics would work. This is Matt Palmer speaking. One of the things that children find so familiar about our games is we will take a mechanic from one game into another game so that when they play a TT Games Lego game, there are certain things that are familiar to them. So they're, they're not having to, to start from scratch. However, the console itself was so unfamiliar. But it was, it was making sure that we used some of the things that Nintendo wanted the console to be about and put that into our mechanics. The, the one that springs to mind straight away is the, the scanning device. So you can actually use the, the handheld screen as a, as a scanner and kind of scan it around in a kind of augmented reality sort of a way. I should get them a car. What do you think of this one? Hmm. You know how they say a picture paints a thousand words? Yes. Well, they're going to have to invent about 999 new ones for rubbish for that thing. So it, it was all those technical challenges that I, I hold my hand up and go, I'm so glad I'm on the animation side because there was probably so much head scratching from coding and programming of, of how we're going to do this. As part of the team worked on striking that gameplay balance, the animators and artists were busy building out the city, something that the team wanted to be in every city. Matt Palmer explains. I think we've seen this in a lot of a lot of superhero style films and TV shows. We wanted to make it an every city. So it took elements from the big cities around the world, um, especially around America, and just had elements in there, not, not as a, this is, for example, San Francisco and the Golden Gate Bridge, but this is a big red bridge that links this area to this area. So it has that familiar side to it. I think Big Hero Six did it um, with Disney. Um, so it gets it's kind of it's taking all those elements of landmarks that people know and putting it in and, and kind of going, well, you know what, this feels a bit like it should be, but actually it's not. Um, business district feels a bit like areas of New York, but it also feels a bit like areas of the business district in London. Uh, yeah, to all those elements, just kind of melding them together to kind of make it feel like one cohesive place that feels like you know it, but you don't actually know it. And then the team brought in a writer to pull the entire thing together, working with former stand-up comedian Graham Goring, who not only smoothed out the rough edges of the game's core conceit and storyline, but also injected an enormous amount of humor. I think Graham was, was the starting point of it all. He'd write something and you'd, you'd hear it or you'd see it and it would trigger something else that you personally thought, oh, what about that? He, he was so, so involved in it and he almost lived and breathed it. It took what we, what we were doing as games to a slightly different level and it, it had the jokes for the mums and dads. It had the jokes for the kids. It felt like a, a nice all-rounded fun game to sit down with even grandmas and granddads and, and sit down with, with grandparents all the way down to five, six-year-olds. And there was an element in that, that writing that just sat with everyone. And whether it be mum and dad having to explain a joke to a 12-year-old or a 12-year-old having to explain a joke to a, a grandparent, I think it, it really bonded players 
But it, we enjoyed it as well, making it because of those little elements that you didn't really notice. Playtesting the game as you've put a new thing in, um, there's a line of dialogue been been written or recorded, and it's just a throwaway line as you're driving past something. But it brought the smile to your face, and it made you want to do more. Yeah, it was. It was it, it's a, an extremely funny game. I think probably the, probably the best one we've done. All right, let's see where you guys are hiding. Got them. Time to get those low lives off the high rise. Huh. I should probably steer clear of cheesy one-liners. By the time the game's story was fleshed out, it included call-outs and parodies of countless television shows and movies. What it didn't include, but almost did, was a zombie horde. <laughs> it was it was almost an accidental inclusion. This is Matt Palmer speaking. So the Lego group around that time started producing, I think it was the first few seasons of uh, the Lego collectible minifigures. So you go and get your blind packs from your local supermarket or your news agents and you kind of, what, what, what have I got in it? And they had produced a range, as I recall, that had a zombie in it. And that a decision had been made to, as they released these, because they're great little one-off characters, why don't we start adding them into um, Lego City? It's kind of a lot of them just would suit um, being in that that kind of environment. And one of the characters just happened to be a zombie. Um, and we were tinkering around with some settings to try and get something else working and managed to spawn in a crowd of zombies it was it was purely by accident that somebody loaded up the game. Somebody committed something, I think, and somebody loaded up the game, and there was a, a whole swarm of zombies kind of coming towards, and everybody just went, "That'd be brilliant." But then straight away went, "But we don't think the Lego Group would go for that." So it, it was just that I think the zombie is still in there. I, I have seen a YouTube clip um, of a load of the characters that I know the zombie was in in the collectible sets. Um, but unfortunately, there wasn't the whole swarm of them. The Lego group's Daryl Kelly said the idea of Lego minifig zombies wandering the brick-filled streets of Lego City is one of the few pushbacks he remembers from working with TT Games on their titles. I, I remember looking at a, a couple builds um, where some you know bonus levels or, or situations were actually created that def, you know went too far. I remember one specific example within the Lego City undercover development. Uh, we had talked about a bonus activity or just an unlock um, where you could actually have the citizens of Lego City undercover become zombies. And they wouldn't eat you, but they would just walk around and look like zombies. And it was, it was hysterical um, and amazing to see. But yes, there was some concern about you know, is that just going a little too far? Is that going to scare children? Um, even though, you know, we would have like a zombie in a, you know, one of our Lego minifigure blind packs or things of that nature. But bringing a whole city to life of zombies maybe was too far. But but amazing. I mean, the, the ideas that TT Games would come up with for these types of, you know, kind of you know, unlocks or side missions were, were never short of fun. That's for sure. While that accidental horde of zombies didn't make the cut for Lego City, another happier accident did. Matt Palmer explains. Just saying about the zombies, that's actually triggered 
um, another accident that happened, um, which is actually in the game, um, which I think is the final red brick where you can you go five times bigger than a normal minifigure. So right at the end of the game, if you've collected everything, um, you you can be this giant minifigure, which it was around the same time as the, the zombie swarm um, because it was originally a zombie that we'd, we'd made five times bigger purely by accident. And suddenly it was like, hang on, why, why is this character just enormous? Um, so we were tinkering around with, tinkering around with some of the settings. Um, the design team saw it and it was kind of, oh, we like that. How did you do that? We worked, worked our way backwards and worked out how we'd done it. And then it kind of went on the back burner and we we started talking later on about um, red brick rewards and if you collect these, you get this and if you collect this, you get this. And somebody remembered that we'd, we'd made this enormous minifigure and they, they came back to the animation team and said, can you remember how you did that? We'd like to try. And then it, it's one of my favourite things in the whole game. Um, you can actually, if you, if you get that character, you can actually then get into a car but because you're five times bigger, you actually sit on the car like it's a tiny little um, skateboard underneath your, your bottom. So you're just kind of driving around the city as a, as a huge minifigure on this tiny little skateboard. Um, so, yes, that, that's one. That's, uh, and that was an accident initially that ended up um, as part of the game. As the team continued its work on the game, it involved a level of scrutiny not typically seen during development. Daryl said the team even gave a private demo of the game to the LEGO Group CEO. We actually had to give our, um, you know, our CEO, Joran V at the time, a de- private demo of the game. So we walked him through the game because it was so, from the leadership, it was so important that we got this right. Doing something with LEGO City is just, it's so important and when i when i say it's the crown jewel of the lego group i i'm not pulling anybody's leg there it's so important that we get this right you know the quality the the view of it the tone of voice within the game everything has to be spot on and if it's not if it's not representative in that respect then it was not going to happen so i just think it goes without saying how many filters we had to pass so the challenges and why it took three years to develop it's just something i don't think we've we've experienced um with any other game. I mean, you know, we go through challenges with with IP partners, you know, and their approvals on on, on gameplay. But for this, uh, you know, it was the first time we have ever had city characters talk. It's been two years since I was sent away, but it made me a better cop, a smarter, faster cop. Ah, so what brings you back here, Chase McCain? An old acquaintance, a promise to keep. So making Chase McCain, that's not something we've ever done. So like, we're all these kind of gates and challenges to get past and to convince internal Lego folks that this is the right thing to do. That, uh, you know, it was just meeting after meeting after meeting between our P&D colleagues, between leadership, between, you know, even, you know, Nintendo and TT. It was just, in the end, again, it was all worth every moment of it when you see that game come to life and, uh, and really being... You know, one of the, in my mind, again, one of the greatest games we've ever produced.
let's take a moment here and consider what it takes to build an entire city out of digital Lego bricks. We're talking streets, people, weapons, buildings. I mean, there are more than 200 vehicles in Lego City Undercover, and all of these were designed by top model artists at TT Fusion under the direction of Steve Bate, who, during his dozen years at the studio, has worked on more than 20 titles. He tells us he came to his job in an unusual way. I did a degree in architecture and spent 12 and a half years in the built environment. I have uh, three brothers, I'm one of four, and my older brother was already in the games industry and uh, he actually presented me with an opportunity to work at uh, one of his uh, studios. And uh, 12 years in, I thought to myself, actually, this sounds like uh, the right time in my life to transition from the real world to the digital world um, and took that opportunity and uh, history has been set. <laughs> so it was a, it was the perfect transition for me, really, because I was already involved in buildings, how buildings were put together, how they look, all the aesthetics, that side of things. And even in my architectural days, I used to do uh, virtual visualisation, so doing renders of proposed um apartment blocks or you know buildings that we were going to do so I was already in that world so it was an easy transition for me to become an environment artist because the actual company that I went to work for was called Juice Games and they did like car racing games so it was like you were driving through city environments so it seemed like the easiest transition for me to go from uh, doing visuals for real buildings to doing visuals for computer games. And it turned out going from creating something for the real world to creating something for the Lego brick world wasn't really that hard. That's because in the world of Lego bricks, everything has a set size. In the real world, things tend to be built around the size of a person. In the world of the Lego brick, they're designed around the size of, well, a, a brick. In fact, Steve said having the built-in constraints of needing to use existing Lego pieces made things a bit easier for him. For LEGO City, his team had to take a very different approach to populating the world with vehicles, items, and builds because it was a sandbox game, one without the requirements of building along a linear storyline with a dozen or so levels. It was a different type of game and it required you know, different thought patterns of what was actually required. So I would say it was actually, there was more freedom to do stuff because it, it, there was more like, there was more realm for um, experimentation and more realm for expressing yourself in, in different areas. Lots of Easter eggs can be dropped in an open world, whereas when you're following story-driven aspects, it's that you're following a, a dialogue or a script and you've, you're trying to get hit the, the beats at the right time. So this was a very, very different um, approach to making a video, video games than what we've done before. The brief was we're making a, a sandbox uh, Lego video game where you can, it's a living, breathing city with aspects of whichever part of the world that we're going to base it on. And for us, we, we based it on the US, you know, and, and, and iconic um, places in the US. Um, after that, then the, the story was, was then the, the next driving force. So with, with Chase McCain being the main character and him being an undercover cop and having different disguises, that's what sort of drew, drove the story, you know, which disguise is going to be the thing that he takes on next and the mechanics that go with that so whether it's a robber or a miner or a farmer so that then started unfolding the story now it wasn't me that wrote the story you know graham goring wrote the story and it's an incredible story that he wrote and um, so that sort of led the kind of the 15 story levels which unlocked the world as we were doing it 
Um, so the constraints of the the open world wasn't there, but the constraints of the story were. You know, the, the, the story became Lego City. You know, Steve was on the game from its start. Back in those early prototyping days when they were coming up with ideas for an open city game. And once Nintendo got involved, his team was able to start working within the constraints of the Wii U and building out the world. So we did have environmental cities and buildings that were built, not out of Lego, but, you know, environment art um, that we could still reuse. And we'd already built most of the stuff to the Lego grid anyway, uh, so that our cars and interactables would look the right scale. So, for instance, you know, if you look at Lego Grid, we'd say four studs was equated to a metre. Like a a house door would be eight studs by four studs, which in the real world was approximately about right, one metre by two metres, that kind of thing. So we, on the block out, we we hadn't wasted any work, but how the city was going to be used, how we were going to stream the levels, how we were going to make sure this, you know, the speed of the vehicles, all that kind of stuff. Steve said the biggest challenge his team faced was nailing the handling of all the vehicles in the game. This was a game that had a massive, eclectic mix of vehicles to play with. There were helicopters, trains, wheelchairs, skateboards, remote control vehicles, a bunch of different sort of cars, trucks and vans, motorcycle, fire and police vehicles, even a licensed Segway. I think mainly is is um when it came to the vehicles, it was the handling of vehicles. You know, we had to, you know, these aren't, even though they are toys, they're based on, you know, real world physics. Um, so that's probably the constraints, that, you know, it's, it's probably the part that I enjoyed the most, to tell you the truth, because it's like there's one thing designing, you know, a vehicle to make it look good and look right. Then there's the other side of it, it's bringing it to life. And I think that's the part that I enjoyed more than anything else. It's giving it's, it's real world physics and, and the handling and, and though we had like 200 vehicles in game, every single vehicle handled slightly differently. You know, we, you know, we had like certain categories. So we had like, you know, uh, sports cars and and uh, you know muscle cars, and then we had like trains and tractors and things. But uh, but everything, even though we say had two, you know, ten, you know, sports cars, each sports car had its own handling. So they had their own attributes, their own drivetrain. You know, the the suspension was all different. Even like the animation of the the engines, every engine was animated different, so that it was unique in its own right. And I know that because I animated them all. <laughs> but um, so um, I think that was the challenge. Really, the challenge was that you know you, you've got two hundred vehicles driving around the city, and every time you jump in a vehicle, it had that slightly different feel, which made it unique. And I think that's something that we have, we're very proud of. You know that you could have cars that you think, oh, that doesn't handle very good, but that's the point. <laughs> They're not all supposed to be the same car. They're all supposed to be very, very different. Because prior to then, it was more vehicles in games um, were more like controlled by how you visually saw it on the screen. So, you know, if you wanted to go up the screen, you press up. If you wanted to drive down the screen, you press down. Similar to the way a character runs around. Whereas this, this was, you know, you've got like a follow cam. So the camera's following the vehicle and you're doing left and right and using triggers to accelerate and, and things like that. So it it was different from that point of view. And we did try lots of different systems. So we tried like doing an axonometric camera view. So you were actually looking down on the city in a 45 degree angle. We tried um, lots of different aspects, but it felt, you know, the sandbox, you know, uh, chase cam kind of camera was the way forward. And it, you know, it, it actually held up on its own. When it comes to actually constructing the vehicles, one of the major parts for us was making sure that 
kids could see how these were built. So we deliberately, when we were doing like the smashables, as you smash the vehicle, layers come off and you could actually see what the bricks were built from, you know, what these vehicles were. So that was important for us. Um, so that kids, you know, once they finish playing the game, they can go and make it themselves. The inclusion of the Segway is a bit unusual. It turns out that it's the only licensed vehicle in the game. And Brian, before we continue, don't you have a connection to Segway? Yeah, you know, it turns out that my uncle was a chemist at Michelin and he helped to design the tires, very special tires for the Segway. That's cool, Brian. Yeah, I mean, even in the game, the Segway is this vehicle that offers a very quiet riding experience in Lego City Undercovers. So you get to hear the environment of the game around you a lot more than uh, some of the other vehicles. Um, but let's let's get back and listen to an excerpt from our interview with uh, Steve Bate on how the vehicles were created in Lego City Undercover. We had to be really careful about our licensing and making sure that we didn't breach uh, licensing rules. So as a concept, what we would do, we wouldn't just like pick a a car off the shelf and say, right, make that. What we used to do is we used to put a mood board together. So if we were doing like a a hatchback, a GT hatchback, where we know there's plenty of GT hatchbacks in the world, we do a mood board which would have a collection of images of what kind of feel we'd want, and then we would design uh, sporadically from that. Um, all our vehicles then had to go through legal, who would check, you know, whether there was too too many similarities to a, to a certain brand, and if they were, we had to adjust the the bill to suit. Um, so even though you might look in in game and say, "Oh, that's definitely a type of vehicle." it's so far removed, <laughs> you know, enough that is you can you can sort of tell but can't tell, but it's, it's elements from different, lots of different vehicles. So we have to be really careful, to tell you the truth, of how we did it. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm actually looking at uh, some art uh, showing the specifications of the Lego brick Segway, uh, which is really, uh, it's a very cool little thing. And like that, it's it's minimalist, but it's it's it totally captures the look of a Segway. That's right. And what we had to do is, I mean, those those sheets that you're looking at at the moment, um, we actually sent them, that's to the CEO of Segway, um, and actually made two little sets for him. Um, for, for City Undercover on the Wii U, we were allowed to have the license to actually call it Segway in the game just for that one. So that was that was cool. And believe it or not, it's actually a little bit of a cheat. It's not really a two-wheeled vehicle. It's actually a six-wheeled vehicle but there's two little stabilizer wheels at the front and back, so it's a little bit of a cheat, really, but it handles so well. So there you go. There's a bit of a sneaky peek here, preview of how we did that one. Like everyone we talked to about LEGO City Undercover, Steve said it's one of his favorites, a title loaded with hours of play and seemingly an endless array of Easter eggs and surprises. It's one of those um, games that, I mean, I've played it with my son, so you know when it came out in March 2013, my son was 11 at the time, and we 100%ed it. We spent like 130 hours in that city, uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, and there's so many Easter eggs. And there's certain things that we didn't actually document. So, for instance, like there's, there's a pickup truck uh, in there, and if you actually reverse up to a, a small or medium-sized vehicle, it will pick it up and you can tow it around. But we didn't document it anyway. It was just there for kids to find for themselves. Um, so it's it's a living, breathing city. It's it's a place that's dear to my heart. You know, it's I've thoroughly enjoyed working on it. It's even when now when you you jump in there and you just have a little 
run around in it. It's got a lovely feel to it. So um, it's something that I don't, I don't think it's ever going to die. You know, it's one of those games that I think anybody can pick up at any time and it's uh, it's got longevity in it. <laughs> While conceived as a launch title for the Wii U, the game hits stores not on the November launch day of the new console, but within the launch window of the system, landing on March 18th, 2013. The game was received well on the system, with Eurogamer lauding the great writing and twinkling level design that had players coming back for more. And Nintendo was very happy with the game as well, Daryl said. I think, and from what I recall, this game was one of the you know best performing titles on the platform, which I think Nintendo really needed. I think that they were, unfortunately, you know, the console did very well out of the gate, and then I think it, you know, it kind of struggled a little bit. But this game, I think, definitely helped to make it, you know, the console worth playing, worth, you know, experiencing this this title to, you know, to help them in the long run. I think it was uh, it was a win for both sides to have this title exclusive on their platform. The solid reviews, positive general reception, and fun use of Wii U's extra features did more than move nearly 2 million copies of the game. It also nourished the blossoming relationship between Nintendo and the LEGO group, Daryl noted. Again, it was one of the first times that we have found that opportunity to work together. There were always conversations that would take place about, you know, getting the Lego group Nintendo to work together somehow. And we always saw that we had the same values. You know, we we care about quality. We care about the consumer experience. I mean, all those things really line up. It, it was just never, we never really had the opportunity to figure out what, how we could actually, you know, work together. What was, what, what, what is it that's going to put us over, you know, the edge to, to finally dip our toes in the water and try something. And this was you know, that real opportunity. And it did open up a great relationship on an ongoing dialogue. There's definitely been conversations with Nintendo, you know, coming to us or, you know, wanting to say, put a certain IP in front that we might consider producing, but it just never, we either the timing wasn't right or, you know, kind of the opportunity wasn't right at the time. And this was really kind of, again, that a jumping off point where, we had a great, you know, opportunity to work closely together. And uh, yeah, it definitely opened doors for, for that collaboration. Lego Mario time! Here we go! Ultimately, that relationship would result in the development and release of the Lego Mario playset. But that's something for another episode of Bits and Bricks. While the studio was happy with the reception the game received, the internal support and just how much they were able to pack into Lego City Undercover... Some were a bit disappointed it was available on just one system. Unfortunately, the Wii U also wasn't doing very well. By the time the game hit, about four months after the console's launch, just three and a half million or so systems had been sold. By comparison, the preceding Wii sold more than three million systems in its first month of sales. While the Switch, which came out after the Wii U, sold just under three million in its first month. I think there was an element of some people won't be able to play this. This is Matt Palmer speaking. And we've made a really lovely game, and we've all really enjoyed making it, and we all really enjoyed playing it, but it's only on Nintendo. And for me, I never had a Wii U, and I had to wait to be able to play it. But then in November 2016, publisher Warner Brothers Interactive announced that a remastered version of the game would be released for the Nintendo Switch, Windows PC, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One. The new version hit in April 2017, almost four years after the original Wii U exclusive. I was really excited 
Here's Matt Palmer. Because part of the disappointment of it only being on um, Nintendo Wii U, we knew that there would be a limited audience. Not everybody will play or buy the Wii U. But then three, four years later, we're actually going to be releasing it to all those players on the PS4 and um, the Xbox who never got to play it. So they get to, to experience all that blood, sweat and tears that we put in um, and fun that we had. Now, it was it was really exciting actually to, to know that we could could give it to a wider audience again. For many who worked on the game and the players who worked their way through the packed city of play, LEGO City Undercover remains a nearly lost masterpiece. A title that highlights TT Fusion's shift from handheld development to beefy LEGO play on consoles and PC and one of TT Games' non-linear creations. I always say the LEGO City Undercover is the greatest game. This is Daryl Kelly. And that's not putting a feather in my own cap because I was not, there was so many people that were involved in this and I, I'd had my, my point and there were so many amazing people at TT Games and Nintendo. Everybody just came together as a team to really produce what in my mind is that great advancement of our games that we haven't had before. For everything in the past, if you look at our games, very you know it's very linear, very A to B. But this game really kind of opened up. It pushed our opportunity for engagement and gameplay, and it helped to open the doors. I think for a lot of other games that would include, let's say, you know, kind of open sandbox type environments within our games, like you might see in a Lego Marvel game in their hub or etc. And um, yeah, it it was a long time coming. I mean, we're talking about a game that was in development for really almost three years from the time it was greenlit to the time it came out, uh, which goes well beyond what we would expect from a normal game development, at least historically with our LEGO games. And um, I think the result uh, definitely was, was, you know, was amazing. Um, and it definitely uh, hit, you know, hit the target in terms of what we'd expected for quality within a game, making sure that LEGO City represented in the right way. The story was the way it should be. And, you know, it really felt like a, you know, a, a huge positive, you know, not only to the LEGO group, but had an impact, you know, on, on LEGO City itself. I was in conversation with an ex-colleague who's still a friend. This is Matt Palmer speaking. And we were talking about what we do for a living. And it actually came up Somebody said, oh, what's the best game you've ever worked on? What's your favorite game you've ever worked on? And without a doubt and without hesitation, I said, Lego City Undercover. And my colleague, ex-colleague, turned around and said, I said exactly the same thing. And it, it, it's one of those, I think, everybody that worked on it, like Dan, I said this a few minutes ago, everyone that worked on it enjoyed it so much and had such a good time. And the, the, team, the team behind it, um, we, we all just kind of gelled together as a group, um, no matter what, what department it was. Um, yeah, I, I, I hope it shows in the game. I really do, because I, I think it's fantastic. You know, you, you have to accept that this is hard work. This is Steve Bates speaking. You know, it's fun, but it's hard work. There's a lot, lot of, you know, hours and a lot of people involved to get these things on the shelf. But it's worth it, because the difference is with a building is that I can't, take the building home and show my family. I can take a picture, but with a video game, it's in people's homes, you know, and, and I think that's the difference. And 
from going from like, you know, the architectural world and, you know, you can imagine all my friends from school, you know, Steve Bate, he works for TT making Lego games. It's like a dream come true. And, you know, they're, they're, and their kid's hero in that sense. And I don't know why, it doesn't really make sense to me, but for them, it's like, oh, wow, you know, he's a Lego designer, you know, he, he's working for, for TT, you know, the kids love our games and there's, there's no money that can pay for that. You know, that's what we're here for. We're here to make kids happy. That's what this is about, you know, and that's our goal. And if we can't do that, we're doing something wrong. And, and I'd say for the past, since 2005, when we started making Lego games, I think that's what we've achieved. We've achieved lots of happy children, lots of happy memories. Congratulations. You've done it again, Chase. I, uh, I thought you should get the arrest this time. You know what? You can have it, Chief. Some things are more important than work. Oh. Bits and Bricks is made possible by LEGO Games. Your hosts are Brian Crescente and Ethan Vincent. Producing by Dave Tack. Our executive producer is Ronnie Scherer. Creative direction and editing by Ethan Vincent. Research and writing by Brian Crescente. Art direction by Nanan Lee. Graphics and animations by Mango Lindinger and Andreas Holzinger. Mixing and sound design by Dan Carlisle. Openings child voice is Milo Vincent. Music by Peter Primer, foundermusic.com, excerpts from Lego City Undercover, and Enric Lindstrand from the award-winning game Lego Builder's Journey, which you can play on Apple Arcade, Windows PC, and Nintendo Switch. We'd like to thank our participants, Steve Bate, Daryl Kelly, and Matt Palmer. We'd also like to thank the entire Lego Games team, for questions and comments, write us at bitsandbricks at lego.com. That's bits, the letter N, then bricks at lego.com. And as always, stay tuned for more episodes of Bits and Bricks. Bits and Bricks.